I am really humbled to be invited to talk about the greatest mystery of the Christian faith, the mystery of the, of the Holy Trinity. Pastor Brian Wolfmiller talking about his presentation at the 2020 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. This doctrine is not an abstraction, but an incredibly practical, comforting, and wonderful mystery. In fact, the contemplation of the Trinity, reflecting on it, shouldn't end in speculation, but rather in the joy of worshiping God. And that's what we'll get after when we talk about this, uh, making the case for the Trinity. You can meet and hear Pastor Brian Wolfmiller at the annual Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference, Friday, June 12th and Saturday, June 13th in Chicago. Pastor Wolf Miller will be joined by Dr. Robert George, Mark and Molly Hemingway, Pastor Hans Feeney, Dr. Albert Moeller, and Pastor Will Whedon. Find out more and register at issuesetc.org or call 618-223-8385. That is why I'm also calling upon members of Congress here tonight to pass legislation finally banning the late-term abortion of babies. The sexual revolution's been irrational from the beginning, and the evidence against it is piling up. And so there's more and more stuff that they have to just obliterate or wipe out or cover up. God is speaking to every one of us, but he's not speaking to you in your heart. He's not speaking to you in the winds of the rocks or the trees or through somebody who claims to be a prophet. He's speaking to you in the word of God. Do this means do this. It's not that tough. Here's some bread. Eat it. It's me. Here's some wine. Eat it. It's me. Students at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana, love listening to issues, etc., and doing our catechism recitations on our drives to and from our fieldwork congregations every week. In the 20th century, when the church found itself in the position of appropriating the culture's message, capitulating to the culture's message, a German theologian said, maybe we need to focus on the words of Christ, not just any words of Christ, but very specific words of Christ, the words, this is my body. He even wrote a book to that effect, Hermann Zasse did. And today the church finds itself appropriating the culture's message, or the culture has taken over the message of the church and is shaping it, we return to those words, this is my body, at the very center of why the church is gathered around the body and blood of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. coming to you live from the studios of Lutheran Public Radio in Collinsville, Illinois. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. It'll be part two of our series on the Lord's Supper and the Church with Pastor Jonathan Fisk here in the first hour. A little later, Pastor Ted Geese joins us. We'll talk about some of the winners at the 2020 Academy Awards, and we'll discuss the Equal Rights Amendment and some comments made about it by Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg with Joy Pullman, Managing Editor of The Federalist. Joining us for part two of our series on the Lord's Supper in the Church, Pastor Jonathan Fisk, Administrative Pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Rockford, Illinois, creator of the Mad Christian YouTube channel and podcasts, and author of the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for February, Without Flesh. Jonathan, welcome back. Thanks for having me back. We ended our last conversation talking about what the ancient church did with the words of Jesus, this is my body, this is my blood. What has the church today done with those words? 
Well, you're going to need different answers to that based upon who you're talking about within the, the broad spectrum of Christendom. But I'll just go ahead and, and go out on a limb and say that for what most people in America would consider to be church, which doesn't include Roman Catholics unless you're Roman Catholic, they really aren't looked to by by the American media as an example of the church when the Pope shows up sometimes. But when they talk about Christianity on the news, they're not talking about the Roman Catholics, and they're really not talking about the Lutherans either. They're talking about the, the broader evangelical spectrum. And what has that group done with the words of institution, the words about what or where or who Jesus' body and blood is that he, he gave us on the night of his betrayal? What they've done largely is ignore them. They've forgotten them. They're there. I, I don't think anybody would say in, in your average big box church, oh no, he didn't say anything. But why are you bringing it up? What's the point? Oh, the Lord's Supper. Oh, we do that sometimes. Yeah, once in a while. It's a special thing. But in terms of it functioning as part of their their mind, part of their spiritual mind, uh, part of their worldview of what makes Christianity Christianity, or, or even more so, part of their gospel, ah, it's just not even there. It's, it's not the gospel. The gospel is a completely different thing. And then you have Rome, and you would want to take Rome seriously and separately here in this because frankly they are the largest christian body in the world to my knowledge and they're the largest christian body i think if, if we're real honest with it in the united states they they wield a vast influence in the united states if you go to any march for life you're going to find out very quickly who's marching and it's not the evangelicals <laughs> i mean there's a few of us there right but but it is it is by and large rome so we need to take them seriously not only as the roman catholic threat to the gospel that is still there, right? It's still there. The, the debates from the 1500s aren't gone, but also as an ally in terms of a belief in truth and on this issue, a belief that what Jesus said, the night he was betrayed, is pretty daggone important to the life of the congregation, the life of the church, to the point where for them, it is a requirement. Yeah, your, your duty weekly is to at least see the Lord's Supper. Now, there's a problem there right, that they think that that's enough, but it's, it's a duty, it's an obligation. And while I don't want to come in and say, well, you know, Lutherans, we need to make a law out of the Lord's Supper. I don't think that's the point. The point is they're doing something with those words and it is at the heartbeat of who they are as an organization. And I would contend that maybe that's part of why their organization is remaining so strong. And then the question then for, for the Lutherans is, is we sit in the middle of this whole thing and watch the sacramentarian left and the, and the papist right, if we can put them in those categories, and watching them do battle with the culture, we surely and clearly have had more affiliation with the sacramentarians in our practice over the last century or so. If we look at what what it means to be church, to do church, for those who use that language, the placement of the sacrament in the regular life of the congregation. Uh, just just recently here, and, and largely without any of my imprimatur or, or initiation, the congregation I serve, went to a weekly both services lord's supper practice the groundwork i think had been laid there by a former associate from, from years past but the elders were on board most of the membership was on board we did an, an education campaign once we kind of realized this is what the you know 80 90 percent of the congregation was asking for this and so we go there and and even as we did that we had long-term members say i've been born and raised in the lutheran church i was always taught you don't want communion too often well, that's what we've done with it. 
we've sat here in the middle waffling between two worlds uh, trying to find acceptance as an immigrant church body in these americas uh, largely and not just german but norwegian and, and western european but but as a whole an outsider church body and, and looking for acceptance looking for somebody somewhere to to kind of say yeah yeah you're the real church too you know besides us and in doing this I would have to say that, that we've done very little with those words, this is my body, this is my blood, other than be somewhat ashamed of them. And I even can call to mind here the blackened process or, or, or practice of closed, close communion. I don't, I don't know. What do you want to call it? We call it different things all the time, apparently. But we're all embarrassed of it. It's not the gospel. It's the thing we got to tell you that you have to deal with so you can maybe learn the gospel later. And just that emotional click that we have there, that this isn't something that we just, of course we practice close communion, but it's something we have to apologize for in both senses of the term, defend it and say we're sorry. It also shows you sort of where we've gone with these words and how how these words of Christ from that, that night of betrayal are not, they're not the thing we gather for. They're not the thing we gather for. There's another piece of information I could throw into this mix, and I'd be curious to your response. I just learned this today, and I'm trying to figure out how I can keep this in my memory banks forever. Uh, A good friend of mine, uh, Pastor John Bombaro, who I believe he's been a guest on the show before, he reached out to me after listening to our last issue, what we did together a week ago. He's wanted to share this tidbit with me, but it so much makes the point that you're asking in one sense. If, If anybody who's a nerd enough to pay attention to the red letters in the hymnal knows that there's like these instructions there for what you're supposed to do when. And I don't know how many people do it, but, but you know, pastors are pretty aware of this stuff. And, and so every pastor is going to know, but you could go check it out yourself that in the Lutheran service book or in your Lutheran worship, the blue hymnal, you can go and you can find in the services after the sermon, probably after the creed, the prayers and the offering, but before the Lord's Supper, there's a little set of red words that'll say something along the lines of, when there is no communion, proceed in this other way. Right, and it'll point you to some other page for kind of how to close the service when there's no communion. And what what Pastor Bombaro pointed out to me today that it just it illustrates it so truly to me was that that's not the original wording from the older hymnals. You go back a little further, and it doesn't say that. It says when there are no communicants present, go on. When you're having church and there's no one there old enough to take the Lord's Supper, then you close the service without the Lord's Supper. But that's the only time you would do it is if there's no communicants there. And yet here we are now in an age where that phrase has turned into when there is no communion. Not having communion on Sunday morning became an option at some point. And we maybe didn't even fight it. And now some of us don't question it. And some of us will fight to keep it from being the case. And I would say, well, that's what we've done with the words. And if you're going to put us in that spectrum between the evangelical and the Roman Catholic, forgetting it, standing on it, that's the spectrum. We're on the forgetting it edge of that. And and that's why I wrote the book, is to say, hey, wait a minute. This is the gospel here. This is it. This is what we're supposed to shout. This very thing. This is my body. Jesus is present. Why do we reverence? Why do we kneel? Right? Oh, we took the kneelers out of a lot of churches too, but many still have the, the railing kneelers. Why do we kneel? Because the king is there. The king is here. Why are we afraid? That's where I really want to go. Why are we afraid if the king is there? Well, do we believe he's there? That's the question we got to ask ourselves. Pastor Jonathan Fisk is our guest. It's part two of our series with him on the Lord's Supper and the church when we come back. Has this sidelining of Jesus' words, this is my body, led to a wrong understanding of Jesus himself? Stay tuned. 
If there was a pill I could give you that would make you immortal, how much would you pay for it? Pastor Jonathan Fisk, author of The Issues Etc. Book of the Month, Without Flesh. Because you see, that's exactly what we have. And it's priceless, but it's also free. So why is it that nobody's coming to our churches to get this immortality? I mean, we can say that it's all their fault, or maybe there's something about it that we've forgotten. Learn more and purchase Without Flesh at issuesetc.org. Concordia University Chicago is committed to keeping college affordable for all, and especially for LCMS Lutherans. We have scholarships available specifically for students who are LCMS members. This is Dr. Russell Dawn, president of Concordia Chicago, asking you to encourage your student to check out Concordia Chicago at cuchicago.edu. And if you are interested in supporting these scholarships, please find us online at foundation at cuchicago.edu. Christological. Creedal. Confessional. You're listening to Issues Etc. Lutheran Federal Credit Union serves the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod community with car and personal loans, mortgages, credit cards, checking and savings accounts. Lutheran FCU supports LCMS organizations with its Spotlight Ministry program, and Lutheran Federal Credit Union allows you to make purchases with Apple Pay, Google Pay, and Samsung Pay using your digital wallet. Learn more at LutheranFCU.org. Good for you. Good for the church. Lutheran Federal Credit Union. LutheranFCU.org. This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we'll study the Spirit's work. Guide it into all truth. A little while. Ask in my name. And the beginning of Jesus' prayer of consecration. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, as we continue our walk through St. John's Gospel on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily verse-by-verse Bible study on demand at thewordendures.org and on the Lutheran Public Radio app. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Talking with Pastor Jonathan Fisk author of the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for February, Without Flesh, about the Lord's Supper in the Church. So we were talking before about how the words of Jesus, this is my body, this is my blood, have been sidelined to one degree or another in extreme cases, either explained away or, as in the case of among some of us Lutherans, they have been kind of set aside as an add-on to Sunday morning, an option or an accessory. Sunday morning. Has this led to a different understanding of Jesus himself? Well, I think so. I mean, and you could go a number of directions with that. I mean, off the top of my head, right away, if you're going to question what Jesus means when he says something, say he's not allowed to say it and it has to fit our understanding, you now have made yourself a judge of the scriptures. And that's going to impact the way you look at the rest of the scriptures. It shouldn't be surprised that a Protestantism that rejected the word is eventually rejects the meaning of the word day or the word man and woman or marriage or anything like that, because you've, you've laid the groundwork. So you've got that. I'm not sure that's even the biggest deal. You have the ascension of Jesus, his taking of the man whom he is, his manhood, his humanity, into the Godhead. And what that means, I think for many Christians, that's sort of just like a lost thought. It's like, like he went Superman, he flew away, and now he's not here, and that's kind of weird. And that's about what we get. What what did happen there? Why did he do this? And to what end? And how is this 
better for us than if he had stayed, like he tells the apostles. So there's that kind of thing. And then you can get even deeper into how this impacts the actual humanity of, of Jesus himself. Being in heaven at the right hand of the Father as he is, what is he able to do? Is he stuck there? Is his body limited and circumscribed the way our bodies are? And if so, how does that impact his way to get to us? Frankly, the, the, the Roman Catholic understanding of the saints receiving prayers on our behalf makes a lot more sense uh, with a Calvinist version of the ascended Jesus who can only do so much with his human body. I mean, he's got to have a whole host of delegated prayer listeners because he can only listen to one prayer at a time uh, if you take it to his logical conclusion. And this then does get taken to some real issue with a thing called the Council of Chalcedon. The book doesn't really get into this much, but but you do end up on one or the other side of a debate from the four and five hundreds over how Jesus is both God and man. And if you take away these words, you forget these words, you're inevitably going to end up on one of the two wrong sides of that argument, because the middle is to confess a mystery that, that can't be understood. But that's, I mean, the incarnation and the Trinity and their essential reality is a pretty big deal if after a couple hundred years of, of a small divergence, you end up not really being able to confess those things. So that's important. But on like a really practical level, I'm reminded of a picture I saw or a video I saw of a congregation that had opened a new version of itself in which they turned the whole place into a coffee shop and church in one. And I'm not going to try to debate good or bad in this. I just want to use one, one element of this that I think is really fascinating. So in this new setup that they had, they had a stage on the side and, you know, they would move aside tables and put in chairs for the Sunday morning service, but the stage, you would have the band set up. Okay. Well, that's par for the course for a lot of places. It's not, not where I would go to church, but so, you know, it's, it, it's what a lot of people do. But then when the band was up front like that, on the Sunday when you had the Lord's Supper, which is not always, but where do you do the Lord's Supper? How's that work? And I remember watching then in the video as they wheeled in this little kind of kitchen cart. And on the kitchen cart was, and it was, it was nice. It wasn't like, you know, a nasty kitchen cart, but it wasn't like this was an altar either. And they push in the bread and wine on this. And then I'm, I'm sure they went through some form of Lutheran liturgy over and around that. And then at the end of the day, they, they wheeled it back out and they go back to the band. And watching this, what that said to me is like, if you step back and you ask, is this bread and wine Jesus? And your answer is yes. Regardless of when you think it becomes Jesus, you have this moment where it's like, okay, we've been here doing church for a while. Why don't we let Jesus come in for a moment and then we'll send him away after this? And, we'll, and that, that's a side thing though. That's not really why we're here. If it was really why we were here, it would be upfront from the beginning and everything we do would be to get to it. But no, it's not upfront from the beginning. We're going to wheel it in. It's a sideshow. And then we'll wheel it back out. And I would say that that right there, I'm not, I'm not even trying to say that that congregation doesn't believe the words of institution. I'm saying they were practicing not believing the words of institution. And I think we're all kind of there a little bit. I think it's part of being in a sacramentarian evangelical world that for lack of uh, any other excuse, we've tried to not be like them and yet we are. It's in the water. And so it's rubbed off on us just a touch to not see this event every Sunday 
as the king of the universe sitting in our midst on the mercy seat. It's atonement day all over again. And now instead of you having to crawl in and make atonement, he's coming down and bleeding on you with the Passover blood of the lamb to take away all of the judgment day. You don't wheel that in from the side, right? It, that's everything. And so, well, why is it not everything? And I don't, again, I don't think it's just one congregation. I think it's a mentality. I think it's infected us. And I mean Lutherans. And I'm one of them, right? I, I, I'm learning this as I go. And I'm, I'm every day having to understand, wait a minute, wait a minute. I think I can fix the world. That's wrong. But there's a body that's not dead anymore. And he's right here in my hand. That's right. So if we want to figure out how to handle the collapsing institutionalism of America and of Lutheranism in America, it maybe starts with the institution we didn't make. His institution of these words on that night of his betrayal. How has the church, to one degree or another, abandoned the gospel as a result of what you've been talking about? Well, it gets back to, again, so if the good news is like, hey, Jesus is at my church to join with you body and life, physically, you know, fusing to you so that, yay, though you die, you won't be dead, and death will be unable to contain you any more than it contains Jesus. Well, that's one kind of gospel. And Jesus came a long time ago and died so that you might know you're saved and live in an awareness that he'll come back someday and you're forgiven now. That's actually a different gospel. Now, I would say that that second one is also true, but that it really only, dare I say it, has meat on the bones when you're unified to it in a physical, a real present way, as opposed to it being just a proposed ideology. Here's a theory about salvation, and salvation is you saying, I like this theory. That's one thing. And then the other thing is, here is salvation. Take and eat. All that bit about being free, yeah, that's why we didn't charge you for it. <laughs> Here it is. Take and eat. You have a you have a faraway God who's an idea, or you have a living God in your face. And so, again, can you have the gospel, the good news, the true heralding of he is risen just as he said, when it's only a set of ideas? What is the mark of his resurrection in the continuation of our lives today? And, and I would say, I mean, it's not just the Lord's Supper, it's baptism as well. But these two things that we historically call the marks of the church, well, what are they? They are his resurrection enacted in the present. Whether you believe in them being miracles or not, and again, the book's going to make the case that you should. But even if you don't believe that, the reason these things are happening, the reason people get wet in the name of Jesus and eat bread and wine in the name of Jesus is because he rose from the dead. And that echo of the, of the resounding event through history is these actions. We took him seriously because he didn't stay dead. And so we keep doing them now. And so what I'm advocating again is that is the gospel. That is the thing we should be shouting from the rooftops. That is the thing we should be putting on commercials or learning how to talk about with our neighbors, because that's the thing that's going to convert them to Jesus. He has risen just as he said, and this resurrection is yours. Here, take and eat. Oh, wait, you can't take and eat, though, just because you walked in off the street. This is about forgiveness of sins. This is about becoming one with the omniscient God. This is about facing the depravity of the age and calling it what it is. But... 
all those things being acknowledged, this is something for a child to believe. And a human male, an adult male, an adult female too, I suppose, a, a full-grown, functioning brain uh, will never understand. It is you to become one of the children of God as you are the child of your father and mother of the flesh. Now you're a child of God of the flesh of Jesus. That just that's a different gospel, man. That's all I can say. It's a different gospel than give your heart to Jesus and believe, which sadly, without the sacrament, you eventually have to def, you know, defer to. What has replaced the presence of Jesus and the gospel in churches where his words have been sidelined? Now, I'm probably going to sound like a radical on this one, but I'm going to say music. <laughs> By and large, we call worship singing music. Right? That's what we use the word to mean. We get this from the sacramentarians uh, as, as an English word. We've tried as Lutherans to say divine service, God esteems. It never really caught on because it just sounds so darn awkward. But even where we have God esteems in the divine service, I think when you have a loss of it's the bread and wine or bust, right? get that food in me because it's life. Once that's no longer the driving factor within the congregation as we congregate Sunday morning, Everything's up for grabs and people are going to defer to entertainment in some way because that's what Americans are. We, we want to be entertained. So you're either going to have really dynamic preaching, a rarity indeed, I'm afraid, or you're going to have some good music to listen to, or you're going to be gradually watching people walk away, I think. You know, you, you can have some, some old-time brand loyal people clinging to their brand loyalty and, and keeping the club going. But in terms of new life being breathed in, that's gonna happen where they've got the band. That's why revivalism has done so well, is it comes along, it says, you know, let me entertain you, to quote the pagans a little bit here, let me entertain you. Because you're, you're grasping for some experience, you're grasping for something real, something that you can believe is actually there. And from the beginning, revivalism's view of the spirit has been so disembodied from Jesus and, and so uh, disemboweled from the scriptures that to know he's there is to feel good. You can feel the spirit's presence. And, and so, of course, then the places where we can have the most control over a group and make them feel a certain way as people is through media experiences. And while some places have tried having you sit down and watch TV, it's a little harder to do that in a group and, and really have it function for mind control. It can a little bit. But but there is nothing like a good musician or a good band for controlling a crowd. There's just no way around it. You go to any rock concert and you will learn very quickly how the power of, of group emotion can be just manipulated and controlled by, by those who know what they're doing. And so similarly, that has been kind of the go-to within American churches. You have to have a musical experience that can convince people God is present. That's the new gospel. The new gospel is an immediate, a direct conduiting of the Holy Spirit via song. And while I love song and I love music and I want good song and good music in the church, it's not the gospel. That's my problem, right? But to come back to your question from the, the root, I just want to emphasize this though. That's my guess, okay? Take, take that as my opinion. But the question is still a good question. When you remove, th this is the thesis of the book in many ways. When you remove the sacrament, the body and blood of Jesus in, with, and under the bread and wine given for us Christians to eat and drink, when that is no longer why you went on Sunday morning, the door is opened for something else and you must put something else there. It's an, you can't have a vacuum in your worship life. And when you put something else there, it will inevitably, inevitably not be Jesus. You can say, well, preaching and the word, okay, good. 
you're lucky if that's if you got that left by itself. Inevitably, you're going to put it onto some other thing. Is it the ladies' aid? Is it helping the poor? Is it just maintaining the same group of friends that we've had? We're such friendly people. It doesn't matter. The thing that cuts through it like a knife, right, is the dripping blood of Jesus. When you all believe that, regardless of what other human problems you have with each other, personalities and quirks and challenges, when you all know that you're kneeling before the king and his blood is dripping into your mouth, it radically changes the way you approach everything. So what has replaced the presence of Jesus? Anything. But that's just it. Anything is not saving us. What we need is him. And his church is founded on him. And he says, this is, this is me. How desperately in need are we once we've forgotten that? We're talking with Pastor Jonathan Fisk, author of The Issues Etc., Book of the Month for February, Without Flesh. It's part two of our series on the Lord's Supper and the Church. We currently have 323 registrants for the 2020 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference, June 12th and 13th in Chicago. We only have room for 500 attendees. Making the Case is your opportunity to fellowship with Issues Etc. guests and listeners from around the world. Registration is currently $135 and includes three meals. Thanks to Lutheran Church Extension Fund sponsorship, child care is free for children 1 through 12. You'll find a conference schedule and you can register at issuesetc.org. The premier conference for Christian laity, making the case Friday, June 12th and Saturday, June 13th at Concordia University, Chicago. When we come back, Pastor Fisk says that the church's impossibility is her historical tenacity. We'll find out what that means. Stay tuned. Looking for a foreign language program that will revolutionize your students' vocabulary knowledge and their understanding of grammar? How about a program that teaches critical thinking skills, too? Look no further than Memoria Press's Latin curriculum. Students of all ages can use these Latin study programs. Give your students the gift of Latin today. To order, visit memoriapress.com and save $5 on your next order by using the coupon code LPR20. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. There are so many issues throughout all levels of government that smart Christians need to view it as a way to care for our neighbor by making good decisions. Molly Hemingway talking about her joint presentation with her husband, Mark, at the 2020 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. The federal government has gotten much more involved in family formation or family destruction, abortion, other issues. And and there are so many ways in which it's important for us to think about how we can defend the weak and vulnerable among us by making good decisions. You can meet and hear journalist Molly and Mark Hemingway making the case for Christian political engagement at this year's Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. The premier conference for Christian laity is Friday, June 12th and Saturday, June 13th in Chicago. Attendance is limited to 500. Learn more and register at issuesetc.org or by giving us a call 618-223-8385. Sanctifying your vocations with the Word of God. You're listening to Issues Etc. 
Mount Olive Lutheran Church in Duluth, Minnesota would like to invite you to join us Sunday mornings at 9.30. Whether you are visiting our beautiful city or live here, we have liturgical worship that shares Jesus with you. We're easy to find at 20th Avenue East and Superior Street, and also offer Bible classes at 8.25 Sunday mornings with Sunday School September through May. Check out our website for other Bible study times, visit or call 218-724-2500. I like to think of the deaconess vocation as driven by two things, the love of Christ and the needs of our neighbor. Issues Etc. regular guest, Dr. James Busher, Director of Deaconess Studies at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, on the vocation of deaconess. First, the deaconess is moved by the love of Christ, who came not to be served, but to serve. Yet I think we can also see the profound needs around us, broken families, loneliness, despair. Deaconesses help the church to become a true family that manifests the love of Christ in our love for one another, and especially for those in need. For more information on the Deaconess Studies program at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, visit ctsfw.edu or call Concordia Theological Seminary at 1-800-481-2155. Welcome back to Issues Etc. We're talking with Pastor Jonathan Fisk, author of Without Flesh, the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for February, part two of our series on the Lord's Supper and the Church. In hour two of Issues Etc., Pastor Ted Geese joins us. We'll talk about the winners of the 2020 Academy Awards, and then we'll discuss the Equal Rights Amendment, which the House today voted to extend for about the 14th time, the deadline on, yes, the Equal Rights Amendment from the 1970s. And they're battling the ideas of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who says it was a good idea, but we need to do it over again and not try and pass it now. We'll talk about that with Joy Pullman of The Federalist. Jonathan, you say that Christianity's impossibility is her historic tenacity. What do you mean by that? We kind of touched on this a little bit before when I was talking about how the impact of the resurrection of the one man, Jesus, has echoed through history by means of water and bread and wine being used according to his commands and in his name, regardless of what other divisions there might be throughout the history of the church's fights with itself. Schisms rent asunder and heresy, making the situation distressed and all these things. In spite of that, you keep finding people gathering to hear of Jesus' words and then to do what he said, to, to eat bread and wine. <clears throat> no, other, no other event in the history of the world that's been repeated, no other ritual that's been repeated has been repeated so often and for so long in such a diverse number of places that on any given Sunday across the world, you have countless people gathering to eat bread and wine because Jesus said to eat bread and wine. This goes past even the divisions over what the event means. And I would say that it's not, it's not okay to, to say that it doesn't mean anything or that, that we can't be wrong about this. But it's kind of stunning. It's like miraculously stunning. Nothing that Buddha did himself directly has such a long-lasting impact. Nothing that uh, Muhammad did himself directly has had such a long-lasting impact as a single event, as a repeatable bit of ritual event, right? Outside of something very vague like pr- 
prayer. Well, that doesn't count. Everybody prays in every religion. This is this is weird. We get together and we eat some bread and wine and talk about how the guy's not dead and then maybe believe it's him, right? You don't do that with, with other religions. The, the, the cult of Caesar didn't eat Caesar. <laughs> so the fact that this has happened, that we can look back from where we sit now and regardless of our divisions, regardless of, of our frustrations, regardless of our jeopardy and danger, we can know that the eating and drinking of bread and wine is historically unassailable. It's a superpower. It, it, it can't die. Just like Jesus, it can't die. It hasn't died. Nothing can kill it. Even unbelief in it keeps it going. And so what do you think happens if you like then decide, well, since we got this invincible sword, why don't we use it? I mean, we just let it sit in a corner and it's keeping us alive. Why don't we pick it up? <laughs> right? And I'm not saying that we haven't eaten the supper. We have. But in terms of looking at our future and, and saying, how do we build our future? Should we build it on that thing that historically has been so tenacious that even heresy can't get rid of it? Or do we build it on some newfangled you know, idea, some new structure? Maybe we need a new church body or a new bureaucracy or, or, or something, right? The latest, greatest, whatever. We need more people on Twitter during the sermon. I don't know, whatever, whatever the latest thing is. You don't have that impossibly but yet real history saying this can't fail and yet here we are we have that thing and so my my advocacy here or my my message here is to just be so grateful to know this that the eating of bread and wine can't stop and so it's not a question of whether or not it's going to stop it's whether you're going to be on board with it Right Now, you as a congregation, you as an individual, you can stop having the Lord's Supper. You can absence yourself from the altar, but that's not going to stop Jesus from doing this. And so, if you want to talk mission, you want to talk caring for the lost or having a heart for the lost or, or loving the lost or what, what have you, I just don't know how you do it without first coming back and saying, okay, what's the mission? The mission is to share the indefatigable, tenacious resurrection in bread and wine as an event with as many people as possible. And then from there, the question of, okay, so is it really him or not, can be faced with a little more honesty. As I think debating it in the, in the arena of just pure philosophy, is it possible, is it not possible? It makes it just sort of a hobbyist exercise. When, when you face it in the context of the miracle that we're still doing it, even if it's just bread and wine and always has been a symbol, we're still doing it. That itself is a miracle. Well, since that itself is a miracle, why are we saying the rest of it's not a miracle too? It's so powerful just by virtue of the human elements involved in this. And so historically unprecedented, there's nothing in history like this. Well, then that would be a good reason in my book to consider that maybe, in fact, there's nothing in history like this. Maybe it is, in fact, miraculous. Maybe it is supernatural since it's doing things that normally human institutions don't do. And then that means the church itself, not just the supper itself, but the church when we know that the church is the supper received and us together bound, come and unioned in that, right? Well, then, then we can't die either. And again, that would give us that tenacity, that courage that I'm on the hunt for. I want the courage to not be afraid of what's gonna to happen to this country, regardless of who wins in November. I want the courage to, I'm gonna care, I'm gonna be a citizen, but I wanna not care in the sense of, I don't wanna be afraid. I wanna know that no matter what may come, 
whether I have my rights or I lose my rights, whether I have wealth or I lose my wealth, whether they take my life, goods, fame, child, or wife, we sing it, right? I want to have the courageous conviction to know that the church is not going to die. And I don't have to be afraid of whether it'll be around. I don't have to wonder, will my congregation survive? It doesn't matter if my congregation survives because the church will survive and I will be able to get to a congregation or I'll be with Jesus. But I can know that again, because I know this, this meal, it won't stop. It won't stop. And so I'm saying, hey, let's hitch our wagons to it. <laughs> let's do it on purpose instead of just kind of uh, riding its coattails and not realizing it's keeping us alive. Pastor Jonathan Fisk is our guest. We're talking with him about the Lord's Supper and the church, part two of our series with him. On the other side, do we use the phrase real presence too narrowly? We'll get his answer next. LCMS Rural and Small Town Mission exists to support and encourage congregations in rural and small town settings. In partnership with LCMS districts, RSTM is uniquely positioned to make a major impact in revitalization support, community engagement and outreach training, congregational partnership development, and worker support through providing and developing resources geared specifically to rural and small town congregations. Check us out at lcms.org RSTM or give us a call at our office. We're here to help. Preach the gospel at all times. Use words when necessary. I prefer St. Paul who says faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And that's what the February issue of the Lutheran Witness is all about, hearing and believing. It includes articles about hearing with your eyes, singing the gospel, listening to the word of God in sermons, and proclaiming the gospel in foreign lands. Visit cph.org witness to subscribe today. The Lutheran Witness, interpreting the contemporary world, from a Lutheran perspective, cph.org slash witness. Expert guests, expansive topics, extolling Christ. You're listening to Issues Etc. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Ad Crucem has crafted a series of posters to put what we believe, teach, and confess on display. See our Luther's Daily Prayers, the Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, Liturgical Calendar, John 1 in Latin, and coming soon, the Athanasian Creed. Visit adcrucem.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M dot com. Lutheran Talk. We have an ecumenical responsibility to hold forth the scriptures and to bear witness to grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. Lutheran Music. Listen anytime, anywhere in 2020 with the Lutheran Public Radio mobile app. Download for iPhone, Android, and Kindle at issuesetc.org. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're talking about the Lord's Supper of the Church with Pastor Jonathan Fisk. 
Here is a quote from Pastor Fisk's book. He is quoting the theologian we mentioned earlier in our conversation, Herman Zasa. If the celebration of the supper should cease, then the preaching of the word would be struck dumb. With the result that faith would be quenched, love would grow cold and hope would die. Where the heart dies, the body dies also. That's from the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for February, Without Flesh by Pastor Jonathan Fisk. You can find out more about this book at our website, issuesetc.org, or call Concordia Publishing House any weekday during regular business hours and ask for Without Flesh by Pastor Jonathan Fisk, 1-800-325-3040, 1-800-325-3040. I think sometimes when we use that phrase, it's a common phrase among Lutherans at least, real presence. We use it in that way you were describing before. We're simply trying to explain in a narrow sense that Christ is bodily present with bread and wine in the Lord's Supper. But it sounds to me, given what you've said here so far today, that maybe we use it too narrowly, that we need to think about not just the bodily presence, but Christ's presence among us. This is how he is with us. Yeah, to, to encounter Jesus is to actually encounter the the man, Jesus. And a lot of the times we treat this more like a Gnostic thing, like you're going to hear about a guy and devote yourself to his teachings from afar, as opposed to taking the, the language of the New Testament at face value, that to encounter a Christian is to encounter one who is in the body of Jesus, the one that is physically ascended to the heavens, and they're there by means of a washing that he instituted as a miracle, uh, as his claim on them is Mark. But then they're also continuing to live from him as a vine does from the branch, that the the feasting of the nutrition is all coming directly from his, his body. And so, because we eat the body of Jesus, we are called the body of Christ, because his, his body in us is greater than our body from Adam. And in this then, when when anybody encounters a Christian, they are encountering the body of Christ. I think one of the challenges would be at this point is that Christians don't really know that. They don't know that they are the body of Christ out in the world. Or if they do, it's with some really weird, again, Nestorian, that's, you know, that, that old debate from Calcin on Nestorian view of Jesus stuck in heaven. I remember a song uh, back from my revivalism days. It was like, we're going to be his hands, we're going to be his feet. And the whole point of the song was, was more or less that Jesus is stuck in heaven, so we got to do it. I mean, that's a pretty crass rendition of it. But that's kind of what it came down to, is that if we aren't going to use our hands, Jesus won't have any hands. Well, that's not what the body language of the Bible is talking about. Uh, not, not at all. Uh, and that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about that we have been grafted into his flesh, his humanity, in supernatural ways. So indeed, it's not like he needs us to talk to people, but we are his mouth. We are his hands. We are his feet. uh, We are his extension in the present. And if we let his real presence just stop with what, what you might call a participationist or a receptionist view of the supper, that's sort of like We don't really know why Jesus does this. He just comes down and he's really there for a moment, but then we eat him. He goes in the mouth for sure. In fact, that might be the only time it's actually him. But as soon as that's over, it's kind of gone too. Like you don't, you don't, you don't chew him. You don't digest him. He's just kind of gone. Again, you're dealing with a mind game at that point. You're dealing with a theory that there may have been a time when that's all we needed to have is our controversy about this issue. But it's, we're, we're in a, we're at war now. Uh, 
You need rations on the ground. You need your troops being fed. And, and these troops are in a, engaged in battles with strongholds that are much more aware of, of the human mind's need for answers than maybe, maybe we were once upon a time. So that you know, people can assent to this real presence concept, no problem. But it's the ramifications that are going to build their faith. I mean, I think about this, this really struck me perhaps very, very early in my seminary education. After the Lord's Supper is received, there's a bit in the liturgy, and it depends on the hymnal you're dealing with. So there is a little bit of a shift of, of the verbatim kind of quote here. But the pastor says something to the congregation about go away in peace now. And it can, it can have other things kind of connected to that, but it's like a, it's a dismissal. That's what it says in the hymnal. You're being dismissed, but you're being dismissed with a promise. Go in the peace that we just asked for. Lamb of God, take away the sin of the world. Grant us your peace. The peace of the Lord be with you. The pastor says that he holds up the bread and wine, and then he gives it to you. Take and eat. You know, now depart in peace. You've just received it. I remember hearing somebody... I don't remember who it was directly that was in a position of authority and they were saying these words every week and they didn't say this true body and the blood of Jesus bless you or strengthen you. They said, may this body and blood of Jesus bless you and strengthen you. May, like, you know, like the first part of maybe, like I sure hope this stuff is good for you, but I'm not really confident in the matter. Now, you compare that with what the text actually says. There's no may, subjunctive, maybe going on anywhere in the text that's been written in the hymnal. And I think even the way it has it in the present tense, it's a present imperative, is, is weak for American ears. But the gist of the thing is that what just happened will protect you. You're worried about life right now? Take and eat this, and God goes with you out the door. Yeah, you're at peace. Yeah, now you may depart and die. Lord, now let your servant go in peace. Your word has been fulfilled. We sing the Nuke Dominus for that very reason. Because the real presence of Jesus is in fact to be God among us. And then God within us, you got to take that very carefully because you can take that, you can turn that God in us into some sort of power we carry. It's better to see it the other way around, that we are now in God. That we are in God in Christ, through Christ and so as it is, as members of his own body, he cares for us and nurtures us like a husband would his wife if he loved his wife. Paul goes this way in Ephesians 5. So yeah, the real presence is so much more. At the same time, there's another problem with that phrase I do want to just point out. Because I think for some, for some era of, of Missouri Synod Lutheranism at least, we kind of conceived of the phrase real presence as being a protection against the Calvinists, against the sacramentarians. So as long as we said, if you believe in the real presence, you can come to communion, then nobody who didn't think what we think would come up. But it's just not true. The phrase real presence can be, aside from too narrow, it can be too broad. It can be a wax nose that fits anything. Oh, I believe Jesus is in heaven and the Spirit is really present to help me have a remembrance of him through this meal. That's a real presence of God and Jesus. No problem. Whatever. Oh, no, of course the bread is not Jesus. I mean, you can say both those things. It doesn't protect you as a phrase. And so in that regard, our narrow use of the phrase and then our trust in it has both been a detriment to our piety in terms of practice and then also not been nearly the buttress that I think we, we would like it to have been. I remember another argument, uh, debate, I had with a good friend in seminary, and, and we were talking about the oral reception of Jesus, the idea that, yes, indeed, the body of the eternal Son of God as bread enters your mouth. 
It goes into you orally. And, and he agreed with this because we confess this. It's in our confessions. But it was sort of the, the how do we agree with this thing? Because I kept using the word physical, that he physically enters us. And he couldn't take it. He didn't like that word at all. And he wanted to go to this other word from Luther, I guess, illocal, which is it's fine. It's sort of a head game kind of thing. But my point in bringing it up here again is how uncomfortable we are with a real presence of Christ that would in fact be his flesh and blood. <laughs> like, like it bothers us, right? Uh, it's like, oh, that's a little extreme, don't you think? But that's exactly it. If we're going to use the phrase real presence, then we really have the entire Christ coming to join with us. And if we're really eating him orally, then it's, he's not ceasing to be Christ the moment he hits the tongue. He is Christ all the way into you and with you forever. So that on the last day, you're going to rise from the dead for good reason, because you are the flesh and blood of Jesus now. You know, you are what you eat. It really, it's really true. And that this is all here, not in order to become an idol, but to give you something to trust, to give you a place to put your hope and your faith. Here, you're in Jesus now. Oh, I can believe that. I can put my faith in that. I can grasp it even. And it's, it's, it's one with me. I can't die. I'm immortal now. Because he is. So, so there's so much more there. I don't, I'm not on a, on, a, on a rage quest against real presence. It's just, it's just incomplete. It doesn't defend us. And I think we, we maybe need to push that ball just a little harder. Like, what does it mean? Is, is, is it just a real spiritual presence? Or again, is the king of kings descending to sit upon that, what, laminate wood altar that we got up there? We got a laminate wood at my place. He's going to sit on this laminate wood altar and a little bit of bread. Like, what do you do when the Lord God Almighty descends and sits in front of you? How do you react? Do you just kind of nonchalantly walk up? Whatever, big deal, just another day. Or does it, does it rock your world? And if it's not rocking your world, I would contest this because you maybe aren't, aren't believing it very much. Yeah, and we, and we should. We should believe it more. So with only 30 seconds, next time we're going to talk about the fact that it's impossible for Jesus' words, this is my body, this is my blood, to be a metaphor. Give us a 30-second preview. Yeah, right. So so for any sacramentarian who's out there like raging at me saying, oh, he's saying all this stuff. So here's the thing. If it's a metaphor, the whole thing's just a symbol. Can you go please find me an agreement in history among the Reformed as to what the symbol is? What's it actually mean? That's not just your opinion. Show me the confessions that tell me what the metaphor is, because you, you'll have a lot of trouble finding it. You can say it's a symbol, but then wouldn't that unify us around what the symbol is? And it hasn't. So then maybe maybe it can't be a symbol because there's no explanation of it. Pastor Jonathan Fisk is administrative pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Rockford, Illinois. He's creator of the Mad Christian YouTube channel and podcast, and he's author of The Issues Etc., a book of the month for February, Without Flesh. Jonathan, thanks. Hey, it's a pleasure as always. Thank you. In hour two of Issues Etc., we're going to spend some time with Pastor Ted Geese. We've reviewed a lot of the Academy Award nominees. The awards have been given. We'll talk about some of those films in the 2020 Academy Awards that got the nod. Then, Joy Pullman of The Federalist will join us to talk about the Equal Rights Amendment and comments made by Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 
62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. Repentance and forgiveness, sin and grace, law and gospel, more than cliches, real preaching for real people in need of hearing the real Christ. Christ for you in the divine service at St. Paul Lutheran Church of Hamill, Illinois, where we gather every Saturday night at 6 and on the Lord's Day, Sunday mornings at 7.45 and 10. Look for the Church of the Neon Cross on I-55 between exits 30 and 33. Find us on the web, stpaullutheranchurchhamill.org. St. Paul Lutheran Church of Hamill, where there is the forgiveness of sins, life and salvation for the people of God. Give your spouse the gift of time for Valentine's Day with a gift certificate from The Cleaning Authority. Call toll-free 1-866-827-0062 or visit thecleaningauthority.com. Forget the flowers, candy, and jewelry this year with a Valentine's Day gift certificate from our favorite cleaning service, The Cleaning Authority, 866-827-0062 or thecleaningauthority.com.